This episode is sponsored in part by Adobe XD. How designers UX. Learn more at adobe.com slash XD. It's time for Brand of Brothers. My name is Doug Berger, and I will be your tour guide through this branding expedition. I'm chuffed to bits to share with you the latest in brand refreshes, a history lesson, wisdom nuggets, and our guest, Devar Azerbegi, bestows some insights. Let's get branding. Let's talk about our latest favorite brand refresh, Intel. Unveiled at the beginning of September 2020 to coincide with the launch event of a collaborative hardware development effort, a sleeker, more dynamic, and elegant visual language emerged, along with Intel Evo, Intel's 11th generation processor. As always, you can see the branding goodness for yourselves by checking out our Instagram feed, at Live or on our website, BrandShowLive.com. On a scale of resounding success to epic failure, was it the good, the bad, or the ugly? So yeah, it's uh, pretty good. But before we dive in, how about we hop in our branding time machine and talk about how we even got here? The original Intel visual identity appeared back in 1968. Despite being a bit wonky, it had a lengthy 38-year lifespan, assuming my math is correct or the maths for our British friends. Okay, anyhow, moving on. Intel was founded on July 18, 1968 by Robert Noyce, Gordon Moore, and Andre Grove. The original logo was created by the founders Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore in the same year. The original logo, like the latest permutation, was pure logo type. It was basically typeset in a pure, bold, sans-serif typeface, in all lowercase, but the letter E was dropped below the baseline, so the tail that curved out from the T became the crossbar of the letter E, which would align with the base of the letter L. Of course, this is pre-desktop publishing days, so it was precision cut and completely custom. We don't know who actually did it, but it's probably safe to assume the founders directed the whole thing. I imagine it would have been more pristinely perfect had they left it to a professional typographer, but I digress. The connection of the T, E, and L are allegedly meant to resemble computer circuitry. Since I'm not well versed in computer engineering, I really wouldn't know. The original trademark blue happens around this time as well. Fast forward to 1991, when we are introduced to the Intel Inside campaign, which would eventually lead to the logo being uniformly adjusted company-wide to reflect this by 2006. I'll explain. This Intel Inside campaign has a kind of hand-cut looking vibe with its custom typeface. The big deal about this is its encapsulating swoosh. We're still sticking with blue, but it's become a tad lighter and a little less saturated. We still have our original logo, but we have this extra emblem. In 2006, though, they get unified, the type and the swoosh. We get a crisp, stylized, albeit dated, sans serif, and the swoosh is no longer wrapping around the type in its entirety. Instead, it's brought in so tight that it's diagonally bisected by the letter forms in the upper left, by the tittle or the dot in the letter I, and the stem of the letter L. Lest we forget, we also get a new slogan, Leap Ahead. It all works. Of course, you can see this in our Instagram feed at Live, and on our website, BrandShowLive.com. And once again, we fast forward almost another decade and a half to today. 
The logo is cleaner than ever. The letter forms are a digitally precise, semi-bold sans serif with the with with like everything perfectly baseline aligned. I would even go so far as to say it reflects something I often aspire to exhibit in my own designs, an aesthetic that looks like it was potentially designed decades ago or uh, decades into the future. The only design element has become the original square dot adorning the letter I, but only when standing by itself. In other words, if the logo type appears with a lockup like Intel Inside, for example, or is subordinated when we see Intel Evo like a a product um, again, like uh, Core i3, the logo type will be one color, including that square dot. But when presented on its own, the square dot gets emphasized with a contrasting color or shade. Why? Well, it's meant to represent the company's history of manufacturing semiconductors and microchips. Pretty cool. Well, obviously, rebrands like this don't happen overnight. This has been a long time coming and an effort to move beyond the Intel Inside slogan. Plus, the reveal in the midst of a pandemic posed interesting obstacles we are not going to get into right now. The brand repositioning wasn't just spurred by need. It was inspired by a quote from the company's co-founder, Robert Noyce. Don't be encumbered by history. Go off and do something wonderful. Since this was ostensibly the ethos that fueled the rebrand, it should come as no surprise their new positioning statement or tagline is do something wonderful. Oh, the color. In the late 60s, we had a dark, saturated blue. In the 90s, we got a muted, lighter blue, right? Now, we not only have a wide-ranging palette of blues, we also get brighter colors like orange and yellow. Okay, this seems really weird, right? But it actually makes a lot of sense. Colors in different cultures mean different things, and Intel is a global brand. Plus, They happen to be major sponsors of the upcoming Olympics in Japan. In other words, don't be surprised if you see a lot of red with Intel's marketing. Okay, so I'm also a bit of a technophile, which means Intel has been on my radar for as long as I care to remember. Like, I don't remember it not being a thing, but They became gargantuan only a couple decades ago, and for me, that's not my whole life. And they became a ubiquitous household brand when we were inundated with the whole Intel Inside campaign, along with a Sonic logo that I think I mentioned earlier. Sadly, that Sonic logo is also going the way of the Dodo. Evidently, there's a new sound, and I got to tell you, I'm really excited to hear their brand in addition to seeing it in its entirety. So let's talk about ratings. I give it a rating of it's something wonderful. And of course, since we are all averse to change, how can it be improved? That's a damn fine question. I really need to stop finding logos that are so close to perfection. Again, I'm really hard pressed to find something to fix. I mean, this was expertly crafted and it's so simple. There's very little to even tear apart. So please forgive me for nitpicking, but I guess it's what I'm supposed to do here. So in the off chance someone handed me the letter forms to revise, I might try to make some optical adjustments, beginning with the tittle, you know, that dot above the stem of the letter I. So my my big issue here is I believe it's a a shit or get off the pot kind of moment. So 
right now it's just not like perfectly sized with the stem. It it actually looks marginally wider, like less than a hair wider. Now, technically speaking, mechanically speaking, it may not be. I did not get in on a microscopic level to see if I'm I'm right or wrong. It's it's about optics. Then there's where the shoulder or curve of the N meets the stem of the N or the left hand vertical side of this particular letter form. It looks like it could be beefed up ever so slightly to give a more uniform shape to match the weight of the other letters. As far as the letter T is concerned, I think it's almost perfect. I would actually very slightly taper where the bar meets the ascender and stem to reduce the weight of the intersection. I do, however, love the bit of legacy that it references the previous logo's letter form, so I might just leave that one alone. Then there's the letter E, which is so perfectly round, it feels a little too wide in relation to the other letters for this particular application. I think I would have used the E from the original logo for yet another historical nod. And lastly, the kerning. They clearly used math, and I can't stress this enough. If it doesn't look right, fuck math. Okay, sorry. So the visual space around each letter should visually or optically appear the same and balanced. The negative space, in my exceedingly humble opinion, is as important, if not more so, than the letters themselves. Tracking out the letters just a little bit could make this logo type near perfection. And despite my critique, if it's not clear how I feel about this refresh, I really do like it. I think they've finally found something that can stand the test of time and not find itself looking outdated even several decades from now. Favorite fonts. So is it an oldie but a goodie or something fresh from the typographic oven? Well, this one is an oldie and better than a goodie. It's Caslon. According to Wikipedia and a handful of other places on the interwebs, Caslon is the name given to typefaces designed by William Caslon I of England, who happened to live from 1692 until 1766. Caslon began his career as an apprentice engraver of ornamental designs on firearms and other metalwork. He would go on to become an engraver of type who worked in the tradition of what is now called old style serif letter design. This particular style revolves around the idea of creating relatively organic structures resembling that of handwriting, specifically with a pen. But before Caslon established a tradition of engraving type in London, he was hired by prominent London printers to carve steel punches for printing. This particular process is called punch hitting, and it is exceedingly complicated. In fact, many processes would be learned in secret and only passed on within families. So these type styles that Caslon introduced, which they were not common at all, they were influenced by the Dutch Baroque typefaces popular at that particular point in time. His typefaces established a strong reputation for their quality and attractive appearance suitable for extended passages of text. Kind of a big deal. It's quite fascinating to note Caslon emerged as one of the top typographic artists in all of Europe. He was basically a fucking rock star in the world of typography in the like 
early 1700s. It's nuts. But anyhow, styles come and go. So too did Castlon's type styles. They fell out of favor for other typefaces you may have heard of, like Baskerville and uh, Didone, which would be adopted by and named for Bedoni. Well, despite no longer being in vogue, Caslon remained in business and began to sell alternative and variable type designs, some cut by his son, William Caslon II. Interestingly enough, his grandson, William Caslon III, would actually go on to establish a competing foundry. Anyhow, Caslon and his son, Caslon I and II, so uh, senior and junior, I guess, um, they maintained a strong reputation within the printing community. And after Caslon I died, he then received the distinction of being the great chief and father of English type. Well, Caslon, the typeface, regularly experiences design renaissances and reinventions, even by H.W. Caslon and Sons, um, a, a foundry from the late 19th century. My personal favorite, though, is Adobe Caslon, which was designed by Carol Twombly, whom you can also thank for Trajan. She was a designer for Adobe from 1988 to 1999. She referenced specimen pages from the 1730s and the 1770s, and she also added features now standard with high-quality typefaces like small caps and old-style figures. These were not a thing of, I guess you could say, they weren't de rigueur in 1990. And since then, Matthew Carter, who we can thank for typefaces like Georgia, Tahoma, and Verdana. He also designed Big Castlon just a couple years later in 1994. And who did Carter design Big Castlon for? If you guessed Castlon Foundry, you get bonus points. In case you haven't figured it out, this guy, Matthew Carter, he is essentially a modern day typographic rock star. This guy is effectively responsible for fundamental visual representations of most typeset words you see today. In fact, he has the dubious distinction of being, quote unquote, the most widely read man in the world, as suggested in a New Yorker profile. Oh, um, I guess I kind of fell down a typographic rabbit hole. I'm sorry about that. Oh, wait, you know what time it is? It's haiku review time. All right, so here we go. First one, old style serif, a typographic sheriff, fonts medley riff. Uh, I kind of, I, I give that maybe a, a seven out of 10. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, uh, uh, the next one, Ben Franklin's Amour, 1700s du jour. No need to say more. I'm sorry. I just can't help myself. I think I'm addicted to typographic 575s. But more importantly, you can see the typeface for yourself on our Instagram at Brancho Live or on our website, BranchoLive.com. Of course, you can download it where you legally acquire your typefaces. Since I'm a bit partial to the Adobe flavor, I highly suggest grabbing it over at fonts.adobe.com. Logo History Lesson. Way back in the 1900s, before Adobe Illustrator or even the Mac, or even before we reappropriated the term branding from ranchers, there were the true pioneers of modern graphic design. And one of my favorite logo evolutions is Starbucks. So while I don't particularly find the design quality itself nor the rendering quite compelling, the story and the transformation has been rather close to perfection. So let's start from the beginning, shall we? 
When we think of the Starbucks logo, we immediately envision a close-up of a two-tailed mermaid with an oversized crown topped with a five-pointed star, but, but why? Well, in 1962, Gordon Boker, I believe that's how his name is pronounced, um, a college dropout from Seattle discovered his love of coffee while on holiday in Italy. Less than a decade later, Boker would convince his roommates, Jerry Baldwin and Zev Siegel, to start what would become the world's largest coffee brand. The company was evidently destined to be named after a character from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. In fact, Boker wanted to call it by the name of Captain Ahab's ship, but they opted to name it after something far more calm, the first mate, Starbuck because their marketing partner, rightly so, thought that that was the best option. I mean, could you imagine getting your coffee from Captain Boomers? <laughs> Anyhow, um, so mind you, this coffee concept is steeped in the idea of of like a nautical theme, if you will. I mean, Seattle, after all, is a port town, so they they had the name. Now they need a visual identity, right? Well, their image began with what would later become something rather controversial. I use this term very loosely because it was basically taken from an existing illustration. The so-called controversial aspects are a bit wide ranging and, and they're kind of far fetched, if you ask me. So first of all, you have these theorists calling it a symbol of the Illuminati or a Zionist plot. Uh huh. Secondly, you have the overly pedantic noting they uh, that the founders fucked up when they said it was a Norse woodcut. Frankly, th they were corrected and told that it was Nordic. Seriously, who fucking cares? But if that's not enough, it turns out it's actually Germanic. So no surprise, these pseudo intellectuals were wrong. And lastly, people complained the twin tailed mermaid was likely that of an inland spring maid as opposed to an actual mermaid. Holy cow, people. Seattle is between Lake Washington and Puget Sound, so maybe they didn't fuck up after all. Maybe this accident turned out to be for the best. Okay, I'm so sorry for my rant. Um, and since I'm obviously not one for censorship, the logo's history goes a bit further to pacify the natives. In case you're not familiar with the original Starbucks logo, this twin-tailed mermaid is topless. That's right, it has boobies. Oh no! Well, for some crazy reason, people were up in arms over this. I mean, the whole point was to reflect the allure of coffee. And yes, I'm rolling my eyes. Well, lucky for the outspoken prudish types, the logo needed to be re-illustrated anyway, so it could be enlarged enough to be emblazoned on the sides of delivery trucks. And thus, the contemporary version of the illustration was born with a new hairstyle for improved modesty and a simplified and modernized design style that we still see today. It's been adopted for the image that stands on its own, uh, very similar to like what Nike has done where they've dropped the logo type. And so it's just become its own icon, if you will. So it works really well in that context. And to quickly wrap up the story, well, sort of, the guys who founded the company would sell their shares to Howard Schultz, the salesman who would grow Starbucks to epic proportions, making its name ubiquitously synonymous with coffee. 
As for the founders, they would go on to have a stake in Pete's Coffee, now part of a megalithic holdings company responsible for brands like Mighty Leaf Tea and Jimmy Choo. Suffice it to say, things turned out pretty well for all of them. Now the guys are on boards of directors, serve as advisors. I think it's Jerry Baldwin who now owns a California vineyard and Zev Siegel is even a motivational speaker. But back to the brand itself. I think this is where I'm supposed to offer my critique. I really miss the charm of the original logo. I, I actually think it's worlds above the current incarnation, although perhaps not as iconic. With the latest permutation, I don't feel like the story is missing per se. It just became really sterile and trite. From a technical perspective, the size and scale of the elements, it just feels off for me. The hair is weird. The curves are not as smooth as I would prefer. I think some minor adjustments to the whole thing could could fix it without most people even ever noticing. And, and another thing, there's this ginormous crown. Why is it so fucking disproportionately large? I just don't get it. I honestly had never noticed how terrible the logo actually is until I was making a parody version of it one day. But clearly, if you see something enough, even bad design becomes acceptable. I don't mean to shit all over the logo, but frankly, I think it's time they hired a professional to fix it. I'm pretty sure they can afford it at this point. Let me put it this way. I certainly look forward to highlighting it as one of my favorite brand refreshes in the very near future. Inquiring Minds. We have a couple good ones and a bit of a critique. So first, the critique. Monica asks, why did you keep calling the leaf on the Apple logo a stem? It's clearly a leaf. Well, Monica, maybe in a logo, those kinds of elements are called stems. <laughs> okay, that's not true. You're clearly right. And it's clearly a leaf. I have no idea why my brain wanted to call it a stem. Alex writes, what is the most important branding lesson you've learned? So this question gave me pause. The most important branding lesson I think I've ever learned applies universally to companies and individuals alike. And that's be authentic. Try to know who you are and project that both verbally and visually. By being authentic, everything just falls into place. From integrity to distinctives, you know, the things that make you unique, it becomes impossible for your identity to be called into question when you are true to yourself. And the last question about branding comes from us from Ian, although it might be pronounced Ian, so my apologies. Quick side note, when submitting your questions, please spell your name out phonetically. Okay, the question is, how do I best determine what typeface to use when designing a logo? First, I must admit I edited their question. Second, I don't think there is a one size fits all approach. And third, I'm still going to try to answer the question by offering an abridged explanation of my process. I, I began, or I should say, I begin all client relationships by understanding a few key ingredients. What are their goals and objectives? Who are their audiences? And what tone is best to project? There are more, but I'm, I'm gonna spare you the details. Um, so once I have an understanding, of what we're attempting to communicate. This helps to begin determining typography. But before we start designing, we should look at what similarly positioned competition does and analyze how we can both fit in 
yet simultaneously stand taller. We have to ask ourselves questions like, is this a classic brand? Or is it contemporary? Are we trendy? These types of questions will inform our decision-making process. If there was an easy answer to this, I think all logos would probably be made with Helvetica. And I certainly do love a well-kerned Helvetica logo type, but like for everything, including Helvetica, there's a time and a place. I feel like I didn't really answer the question. I also feel like there really isn't a finite response. It's almost like asking how to get somewhere without knowing where you're going. Once you establish your destination, then, and only then, you can really begin to chart your path. It's interview time. Born to Iranian immigrants in London, England, our guest grew up in Paris, France, and came of age in the United States earning his MFA from Pratt. As Paula Scher was revolutionizing graphic design and David Carson was turning graphic design on its head, he was in the trenches experiencing firsthand a 20th century renaissance. While he witnessed Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, and Ray Gun bridge new paradigms, so too did he experience the technology for our industry make dramatic shifts. His skill and talent rapidly elevated him through the ranks of the most prestigious agencies on Madison Avenue. Ever the cosmopolitan, he traveled halfway around the world for his design career. Decades later, he found himself back in the United States working for massive branding houses, and today he teaches at one of the top design schools in the nation and runs his own firm. Without further ado, here's my interview with Davar Azerbegi. Hi, Doug. Hey, how are you? Good. Hope you see me. You're good. Video on I can see you, and it looks like recording started automatically and everything. How beautiful is that? I know. Don't you love technology? <laughs> it's great when it works. Um, so uh, do you want to dive right into the interview? Sure. Absolutely. At what point in your life did you realize that you were creative, and how did you come to that realization? Well, uh, as I was, uh, I went to New York to become an art director and I was kind of working in a printing shop as well as kind of studying graphic design at Pratt Institute and during. But like, was there was there a point in your childhood, for example, that you recognized that you were creative, that you wanted to make things? Yeah, I mean, as a high school student, I was always, um, I was a good illustrator. So I was doing great graphics, basically. And the best way to do that is I was copying album covers. So at that time, I was, I mean, I still am a big fan of Queen. So I was kind of looking at their album cover, designing their logo um, just by hand, just to kind of um, in color and full, you know, I had a set of calligraph pens and I was kind of, you know, just copying. I did I was pretty much using Illustrator before even Illustrator was invented. So it was kind of like just by hand uh, doing graphic elements. I wanted to do, see how far that would go. And that was kind of my high school um, uh, design. It, what's interesting is like I would go into arts class and everybody would do beautiful paintings or finger paint or whatever paintings they were doing. I somehow ended up doing architecture and very detailed graphic buildings, graphic cars, um, you know, graphic graphic logos by hand on they had like architectural ruler pens kind of rotring stuff and I had bought a, my uncle had bought me a set and I was kind of using those in art class while everybody else's assignment was something completely different my assignment was pure illustration and graphics cool 
So do you think that discovery, like in high school, being creative changed your outlook on what you would do professionally and how you perceived yourself and the personal image that you projected? In other words, when you were in high school, did you own the identity of being an artist? And did you see that as having an impact on studying architecture? Yeah, it did, because at the same time, a lot of my illustrations that I was doing in school were uh, renderings of buildings, whether it was a facade, whether it was a 2D or 3D focal point kind of thing in black and white. I was doing a lot of those. And at a certain point, my art uh, art teacher kind of gave up I mean, even supervision. He's like, yeah, well, he wants to become an architect starting today. I'm not going to teach him art when he's doing renderings in 3D, What I mean, by hand and uh, marker pens. So what's the point? Right. And and speaking of, of teachers and instructors, so during your educational safari, you seem to have come to a crossroads, if you will, where you were presented with having to decide between being an architect or being a designer. Yeah. How did you get to that point? How did you choose to be a designer? What, what were the factors that made that a reality for you? Uh, the factors were basically there was a much more um, deeper knowledge of design, whereas, uh, you know, I have an uncle who's a pretty well-known and established architect, and he kind of broke it to me very gently. He goes, you're going to be doing this much design and this much blueprint till you're blue in the face and, you know, engineering, mathematics and all that. But and you I'm could like, have been the next Le Corbusier or the, exactly. <laughs> the next Frank Lloyd Wright. I lived in south of France. So my um, architectural um, uh, gurus at that time, people who influenced me were Le Corbusier, were people like uh, the fashion designer Pierre Cardin. And I used to see him where I used to live and we used to sit and chat. And he used to tell me, and and this is like a huge fashion designer of the 70s and 60s. And he used to just sit down next to me and do sketches. And I'm like, why do you, how do you come up with ideas? And he told me, he goes, even when I'm on the toilet, I'm always sketching. I'm sketching 24 hours, seven days a week, sketching, sketching, sketching. And at that time he was advanced, he was in his 70s. So it was interesting to see this creative process that follows you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's a great transformation of what you have visually into, you know, making it coming into reality. So you then went to art school. Tell me about that art school experience. Well, art school in terms of college or Pratt Institute? In terms of Pratt. Pratt, yeah. So that was kind of one of those things where, okay, I'm going to go to New York, but I need to finish my studies. I need to decide what am I going to do in New York? I'm not just going to show up and, you know, try to get a job. I want to really dive into, and that was the early 90s, into what graphic design is, how to learn it. Um, the influences at that time that were going on were incredibly you know, the polishers were putting posters. The, uh, David Carson was coming up with the whole design movement and that kind of shook everybody in school. And it, it was interesting because you were seeing that happen real time without really knowing what are the effects, what are the ripple effects of these great designers um, in the design world. And did you find seeing stuff like Polishare's uh, Bring It to Noise, Bring It to Funk, or yeah. seeing David Carson's Ray Gun, did you see that have an impact on your personal aesthetic? 
Yeah, I, I definitely did. They really um, shaped me. Their process shaped me because at the printing shop, again, that I was working, uh, we would have to run errands. And, you know, it was in the Flatiron District right across from David Carson's office. So you would run errands and you would knock on the door of, you know, the Carson uh, at that time, the uh, what was it called? Raygun magazine shop. You'd walk in and you'd hear some guy screaming and throwing paper around and you had a delivery of a print. And that entire world fascinated me. It was really, really interesting. But at the same time, you know, I would have real architect, I mean, designers, graphic logo designers of the 90s from the Landor days who would come and, you know, borrow laptops and Mac tops for, you know, rent them for the day and do endless designs of logo and branding. So I would see in real time, you know, people from Wyden and Kennedy Landor come into our printing shop and have stuff printed because they didn't have good printers or really glossy, cool printers at their offices. So they would come and, you know, kind of print their stuff there. And I would always, you know, a couple of prints, they would say, no, this is good. Let's do it again. I would put everything aside. I would secretly hold on to those gems because there was something fascinating for me in terms of the process, seeing them redo logos over and over and over again, whether it was an illustrator doing it by hand and then bringing it to illustrator, then putting it in a presentation and then making sense of it. So it was very mind opening at the same time studying, but also working right in the, how do you say, the middle of the whole uh, design world that was going on. Sure. You've had an amazing physical journey, like actually going and living in a variety of places. Obviously, you know, you you've even in the earlier part of your life, right? Like you were, as you, you had mentioned, you were born in in Europe and and you lived in Paris and you uh, you made your way to the U.S. and then you're you're working in New York City, having an amazing career there, and then opportunities open themselves up for you. So tell me about your your travels and how it affected you. Not just personally, but I'd, I'd love to know that as well. But as a designer, like how how did it affect your how did it impact your awareness? And, and do you feel that that it expanded your your visual vocabulary? Yep. Um, I truly believe design is a universal language. Um, we should be culturally enriching ourselves by whether it's by traveling, whether it's by researching or whether by just, you know, going to a city like New York or going to California and feeling and at, at the same time experiencing different cultural backgrounds. That's at the end of the day, it's extremely um, fruitful. It's fantastic for your imagination. It's great for your creative juices flowing because um as I mentioned, after New York, I was hired by BBDO in Dubai to go there as a head of design of a department that was part of their bigger advertising firm. So I was like, you know what? It looks like at that time, also it was, Dubai was like the center of the world. It was like the new Las Vegas or New York. And the kind of, again, uh, you know, design that was going on there was extremely opulent. Um, there was a lot of different graphic designers from England and Australia who were getting hired um, to go there. 
and they're getting paid a lot of money, young people who were just, and I saw the agencies like the Landors and Brand Union were opening small shops there within other advertising agencies. So I saw this as an opportunity that I could not not take and went there with my family and we kind of settled there. And that was, an, you know, the cultural diversity was extremely enriching. It was not only enriching, but it was fantastic. It's like you take it in, you learn as much as you can, you look at the cultural diversity, you can see different ways of people who talk about design or see design. And there was a bigger appreciation of design than some of the, uh, I would say, uh, people in New York. You know, for them, design was very functional, was all about the money, where when you go to a place like the Middle East or at least, you know, the kind of uh, country and environment that was there, design was much more of a beauty product. You know, it was really about the aesthetics, not about the business. And in that time, could you see how your aesthetics, how your designs shifted? Yep. Uh, they shifted in much more of a looking at branding and design as something that's beautiful rather than functional. So there has to be a functional component to it, but you have to do beautiful design. You have to put design out there that the people want to gravitate to, want to buy, want to interact with, want to, you know, go out there and know more about uh, instead of just being a brand that sells and there's a dollar sign behind it. Like I think most of the brands in the United States where there's a monetary value placed against that brand in in the Middle East and also in Europe, it's just much more um, beauty focused, much more uh, uh, design focused rather than financial focus. Sure. And then as time went on, you found yourself back in the United States. How did that happen? So um, again, unfortunately, um, there was a crash in 2008 with the real estate and a lot of our clients over there were real estate clients. And suddenly they dried up like oil, you know, in a well or water in a well, they dried up. The economy again caught up to uh, the, the, I would say the industry. And I was kind of like, okay, we need to go back to the States. Um, you know, it was a time where branding was still really popular around 2008, 2009. You know, there was a flourish of new brand initiatives, especially packaging design initiatives. And uh, I had, when I was in New York, I was my last agency that I was working for. I was as a ACD uh, working on Crest and Oral-B. So I had a connection with Cincinnati. I used to come here at least once a week for meetings with PNG. And I had kind of experienced the city of Cincinnati and I found it extremely beautiful and nice and kind of laid back. You know, it's a big shift from uh, New York, Dubai to Ohio, but it was a shift. And, you know, I have kids, so I thought, you know, they might enjoy it. I mean, we've been in the Middle East for nearly four years, but at the same time, they're American. They were born here. They're fully American. So I kind of say, okay, they're growing up. They're not babies anymore. They need to experience the American life in much more of a direct way. And that's when the opportunity with an agency here called LPK uh, came about. They offered me a job here with compensations, moving and everything. And I said, yeah, let's go see how it is here. And you hung out there for a few years I'm still here. <laughs> with with LPK, though. No, no, no. Well, yeah, I was so, at LPK, yeah. I'm so, still in Cincinnati, right. but um, yes. not with LPK anymore. So, so you hung out with LPK for a couple of years, and then you did something crazy. <laughs> yeah. You well, decided I've... to take a giant leap from megalithic design houses to start your own thing. So yeah. the first question is, why would you do that? 
I I think I I know from personal experience, but I'm going to I'm going to defer to you on this one. And how has this changed how you create and and not just how has it changed how you create, but I also want to know what this has done to your process and what your process is like. So first, tell me why. Why did you start your own thing? Well, it was one of those challenges which I set for myself in terms of, okay, I've been to the agency, you know, from New York to all the way to LPK and Interbrand. I was in the agency world and the formation is kind of like the master's degree of formation that you go through there is great. You learn a lot, but now it's like, let's put it into practice. Let's open our own shop and start uh, trying to at least get clients kind of put the business side um, as part of the mix, learn about the business side of design. And the best way to do that is really by starting your own shop, by starting your own freelance shop and start learning how much do I charge people? I mean, I'm always, you're kind of always, um, when you're working at an agency, you don't see prices, you don't see how much it costs. You just know timesheets and you understand and see, you know, there's a project, you don't know how much they're putting for the overall scope of the project. So here as a freelancer, as well as an independent freelancer, you start putting those things together. You start figuring it out. How did you figure it out? I figured it out through just, you know, watching people like Christo, his video was really um, the one where he says how much, you know, everybody, millions of people have seen Christos, how much should you charge for a logo? And that was incredibly, I would say, I would give, props to him because that was an awakening. It's like, wow, I'm not charging enough. You know, I'm providing more than just a branding and a logo. I'm providing a service. I'm providing a service that can last beyond the design aspect of it before me, during and after. And I should charge more. You know, I should charge more, not because of I have needs and paying bills and all that, but I should charge more because there is a real value in providing design. And once you put out, put yourself out there, the social media, especially take advantage of it, take advantage of promoting yourself, take advantage of being on Instagram, putting your work up there, take advantage of going on LinkedIn and talking about design or posting other designs that you feel are good design and spread that out because you'll find out that a lot of people don't know what good design is and they are still like, is it a logo? And you still have that, you know, the same question. What is, well, what's a logo? So can you talk to me? Number one, have you seen your creative process shift since you were with these other agencies into how you do things today? And then can you describe what that process is like? The creative process shifts with every client. It's never the same. You know, it's 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 a different process every time, not because um, of money or how much they're paying you, but because you want to, you know, really understand what are the needs of the client and every client needs different things. So obviously there is a little bit of a strategy. There's a little bit of an audit and then design and mood boards and mood board presentation and then the design. But I think that that uh, process changes with every client because every client is different, you know, and that's the beauty of being freelance. I'm getting international clients from all around the world who want to work with you or who want to think, they think, oh, what, what is your process? And when you tell them your process, they're like, okay, now I know why you're asking this much. There is much more than just design. So once you explain that process, once you take them through that process, or at least that there is a process rather than just pretty pictures, they start putting a monetary value towards that and they start, 
you know, saying, okay, for this, I want this, I want a strategy, I want a good audit, I want options. And then after that, if there's the opportunity, I want to develop more branding out of it. You know, I just don't want the packaging. I want the website and I want the social media. Oh, by the way, you know, we have another exhibit event coming. You know, can you do that? Because at that stage, you start becoming the brand owner you start becoming the agency or the brand keeper and they can't do anything. I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, package everything up, go to a new designer and pay them? No, you start becoming a partner, less of a designer and much more of a partner with them. For sure. Yeah, I refer to that as brand stewardship. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to owning your own agency, because that's not enough, you also decided to become an educator at a top design school. So yes. what catalyzed this for you? How did this come to be? What what was that opportunity presentation like? How did you choose to, to engage it? And more importantly, what are you learning from being a design instructor? So, um, again, one of those coincidences where uh, a gentleman, a creative director by the name of Matthew Flick um, uh, contacted me and he was like, you know what, we, we have this school called, it used to be called the SAA School of Advertising, and then they changed it to the Modern Design School, uh, Modern College of Design. And, you know, we have this great opportunity. We need people who are real life or in the industry who had that experience and come and teach our students, um, you know, design. What is design? What is the importance of design? Put a curriculum together and teach some of our young students who are just coming from high school in terms of what is design? Is it a career they can do and why is it a good career? So that opportunity came and it's a fantastic opportunity because there are young, small a design school, not more than 200 students, but they're very focused. You can literally, you know, have a real relationship with a student and be there for them as well as with them and see them grow, flourish and, you know, kind of send them off like a kid into the real world of design. And some make it, some don't make it, some hate it, some don't. But there's a real passion there that you can see from day one. And that is a kind of passion that, you know, gets me excited in teaching design as well as gets them excited to learn about design. And what would you say that you're learning from being a design instructor? What, how is that? How has that affected you as a person? How has that affected you as a designer and as a, an agency owner? Like, are there aspects that you are discovering that you've co-opted and are employing for yourself? You get a much bigger and deeper appreciation of design because what you think you know, they don't know. And when you kind of, um, you know, explain to them and show it and you see this understanding and excitement is like you're learning from them as much as they are learning from you. Because at a certain point, whether they're in their second or third year or bachelor degree program, they start showing magic. And then you're like, yes, you know, this is the process that we went through. This is why you are who you are. This is why it works. Trust me. This is why this branding works and it's going to look amazing in your portfolio and it's going to land you the next job. I got to say those were great words, but I, I have to end it with this, which is, do you have any words of wisdom that you care to impart? Yeah, um, my biggest um, thing is like enjoy and know the true value of design. Learn about it as much as you're, you know, 
working on it. It's a great field and it's a fantastically big field and find what is your passion and just pursue it all the way. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I really Thank appreciate Thank you. It. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Devar Azarbegi for joining Brand of Brothers. You can visit his website, inhousedesign.design, to learn more. Wisdom Nuggets. Now it's time to talk about something that may or may not have happened in my decades-long career and, well, what I learned from it. On one level or another, this has probably happened to me and I didn't realize it, or maybe I did and just didn't give it the credence it deserved. I gave away my work for free, but it's not what you think. A friend didn't ask for a favor. I wasn't doing someone a favor. I was trying to win business against friends. Granted, these friends are technically considered my competition, but we share laughs, we share horror stories, we share tabs. We also might covet the other's clients. What am I talking about? I'm talking about RFPs or requests for proposals. These are the craziest things that seem to be accepted in our industry. First, Someone puts together a document comprised of an insane set of requirements. These requirements might be to tell them who is going to be on the team working on their projects. How the hell am I supposed to know? What are these projects? Then they give a listing of vague notions you have to interpret. There's no discovery process. You're researching in a vacuum. Fuck, what if you're wrong? Oh, oh wait, it gets better. Not only do they ask some seemingly invasive questions like, how much profit are you going to make off of them hiring you? Um, all of it? <laughs> then, then to make matters more fun, they expect you to deliver a shiny fucking package for how much? Zero dollars. That's right. They're going to pay you exactly nothing to spend countless hours completing a turnkey campaign. But wait, it gets better. Then you might get shortlisted. Cool. You just got the opportunity to spend more of your own time and money to try to impress people who have no clue how to do your job. But if they really love your design and your price is the lowest, you might win. They might just choose you. Of course, if they love your design, and someone else has a better price, the RFP says they own your fucking IP. Yeah, that's right. By submitting your work for free, they own for free your intellectual fucking property. Did I mention you just spent dozens of hours and hundreds of dollars, possibly even more, in hard costs with zero potential for remuneration? So what am I getting at? If someone sends you a document outlining their expectations and they seem unreasonable, well, it's because they are. If you're not familiar, spec work or speculative work is ostensibly work done for free in the hopes of getting paid for it. It's like competing for a prize. If they like it, they pay you. It should be noted AIGA, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, lays a solid foundation stating, quote, AIGA believes that professional designers should be compensated fairly for their work and should negotiate the ownership or use rights of their intellectual and creative property through an engagement with clients. 
To that end, AIGA strongly encourages designers to enter into client projects with full engagement to show the value of their creative endeavor and to be aware of all potential risks before entering into speculative work. In other words, don't be an idiot. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Frankly, an agency a few years back, it could have been 2018 if I did my research, created a fantastic video. The Toronto-based ad agency known as Zulu Alpha Kilo has this guy going around town asking people to try their goods and services before he considers hiring them and or paying them. Now, I don't know about you, but I would never have the balls to ask a barista to make me a cappuccino, let me drink said cappuccino, and then decide if I wanna pay for it. But it gets better. The price on the menu for the cappuccino is, I don't know, we'll say five bucks, which might be a really good or a really bad deal depending on the cafe, where you live, blah, blah, blah. But anyhow, um, here's where it gets sticky. If I decide to pay, I obviously am going to want a discount because I'm going to be um, the I'm just only going to be buying my cappuccinos or cappuccini, cappuccino, whatever. I think it's cappuccini, but we're in the United States, so fuck it. So I'm going to buy my coffee from this cafe. That's right. It's the best fucking drink I've ever had, and I want it for half price. Fucking insane, right? Well, I may have recently gotten an RFP from hypothetically a real estate group. I'm not going to go into any detail because I'm making this shit up, right? Yeah, we'll go with that. So I thought it would make sense to ask them if people see houses they're interested in buying and ask to live in the house mortgage and rent free for a couple months to just, you know, try it out. I may have also sent them a YouTube link to a Zulu Alpha Kilo video. So what's the moral of the story? Don't devalue your work by giving it away for free in the hopes for some sort of big payoff. You're worth more than that. Save your time and effort and money. Go buy yourself a lottery ticket. Your odds are practically just as good. It's closing time. Well, that takes us to the end of this installment, and I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Brand of Brothers, brought to you in part by Adobe XD, how designers UX. Learn more at adobe.com slash XD. I really appreciate you tuning in. This episode was written, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Doug Berger. Music by Andy Slatter and Studio Etude. Plus, as always, a special tip of the hat to my professional partner in crime, Simon Jacobson, Find more details about the show on our website at brandjoylive.com. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you didn't, please share it with your family and enemies. Either way, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform, assuming it lets you do that. Feel free to tell us what you liked or how we can improve by dropping us a line at hello at brandjoylive.com. You can also hit us up on social media at brandjoylive. And if you really want to help, Please take the survey at brancholive.com slash survey so we can convince potential sponsors we're better than we really are. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash brancholive. Until next time, branding wishes and marketing dreams. <laughs>